0: Please find Psalm 27 with me. (coughs) Psalm 27. We're going to be spending our time this morning in this psalm. And uh, I know of no better way than begin studying a psalm than just by reading it. So Psalm 27 in verse 1. The Lord is my light. And my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart seeks you. Your face do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and mother, my mother, have forsaken me. But the Lord will take me in. One of the most uh, common exhortations that preachers make is that we are disciples on Monday every bit as much as we are on Sunday. At least we should be. Uh, Preachers are always talking about how Sunday only Christianity won't cut it, how our character and mission on Monday should not be radically different from our character and mission on Sunday. We won't take the Lord's Supper tomorrow, that's true. But we should keep obeying God tomorrow as much as we do today. We should keep praying on Monday as we did today. We should keep trusting God on Monday as much as we did today on Sunday. Our Mondays should not be entirely different from our Sundays. And yet, to be honest, it's a hard case to make sometimes because Mondays are different from Sundays. On Sundays, we go to this special place and we do spiritually focused things like sing hymns together with all our brethren, we listen to sermons. On Monday, we go out into the world. We go to work, we go to school, we go about our regular business. On Sundays, we're surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ. On Monday, we're surrounded by all kinds of people, many of whom care absolutely nothing about Jesus. On Sundays, sometimes we experience a sort of spiritual high, where we're encouraged and reminded of big truths about God. On Monday, we're often back to the doldrums and hardships of life that make it easy to forget about those big truths about God. I believe that experience, feeling like Sunday is different from Monday, that experience is what this psalm is all about. And I've entitled my sermon, Are Hymns Still True on Monday? Did you happen to notice that about halfway through the psalm, the entire tone changes? The grammar and the tone changes. It's almost like Psalm 27 has two entirely different psalms mashed together. So I want you to notice, first of all, the grammar change. Verses 1 through 6 speak of God in the the third person. God is always he in verses 1 through 6. It's a sort of psalm about God. He's thinking about God. But suddenly in verse 7... He begins speaking of God in the second person. So God is not he, but rather God is you. He's addressing God directly. The first half of the psalm, and the, and the tonal change. The first half of the psalm has the feel of a hymn, where we're singing about God in the abstract. We're reminding ourselves of all the stories and attributes of God that we know he has. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? There's literally a song in our songbook that begins that way. There is a confidence and a certainty in verses 1 through 6. But suddenly in verse 7, we switch to what seems like an urgent prayer of intercession where God is addressed very personally because of the psalmist's trouble because he's all of a sudden discombobulated. The way he thought the world worked, the confidence he had in God seems to have disappeared. So suddenly in verse 7, he's saying, God, where are you? Don't hide your face from me. I'm trying to seek it. Don't turn away from me in your anger. Don't forsake me, he's saying. Part of the genius of the psalms is their ability to capture real life. They are written by real people who are completely honest with us and with God about their struggles and completely honest about their relationship with God in those struggles. There is a time when the psalmist can confidently profess his faith in God, and then there is a time when that faith is tested. There are confident Sundays followed by worry-filled Mondays. It's hard to maintain the same level of faith and confidence in God at the workbench or at the school desk or in the hospital bed that you had in the church pew. It's hard to be equally as faithful and confident in both of those places. And that, I think, is what this psalm is about. So what I want to do is I want us to talk through the psalm, talk through the two very different halves of this psalm, and then we'll end with two points for home, trying to take this psalm off the page and into our lives. So let's begin in verses 1 through 6. with Sunday's confident professions. So the psalm opens at verse 1 with an expression of absolute confidence in God that banishes all fears and makes all his worst enemies look like a bunch of wimps. So verse 1 again. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who will stumble fall. So he begins in verse 1 by piling up metaphors for God which inspire all this confidence. And so he begins, the Lord is my light. God is the dispeller of darkness. Now, sometimes in the Psalms, darkness stands for sort of the fearful unknown, as in Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it's the fearful unknown. Other times in the Psalms, darkness stands for sort of the dark forces of evil. Psalm 18 would be a prime example of that. Either way you want to take it, God is the torch that chases away all that darkness. When I have God, all that darkness runs away, and I see clearly where to go, and I am safe. The Lord is my light, and then he says the Lord is my salvation. Now, we we tend to ascribe a very spiritual meaning to that word, salvation, Uh, but for David, first and foremost, it's a word that would have been used in military contexts. God had saved David from enemies time and time again, whether Goliath or Saul, whether the Jebusites or the Philistines, and many others we could name. And then he says, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. As another hymn goes, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. When we draw near to God, we draw near a castle, a fortress, a citadel. And what that lighting up, that saving, strongholding God does for David in verses 2 and 3 is to smash and humiliate his evil enemies. Now, he gives them credit, in a sense. He describes them as being absolutely fearsome. He describes them in verse 2 as being cannibals who want to eat his flesh. In other words, they don't just have a grievance against David. They don't have a nitpick against David. They don't just want to take some of David's stuff They want to destroy him completely and consume him. Their motive is pure malice and hatred. And yet, he says, in spite of their fearsomeness, because God is my stronghold, it's them who will fall and not me. So can you appreciate the confidence so far in verses 1 through 3? He continues in verse 4. In verse 4, he changes his focus slightly. His statement of confidence moves from sort of the battlefield to the temple. He doesn't seek salvation from his enemies just so he can kick up his feet and relax. He wants salvation so he's free to dwell in God's house without distraction. Verse 4 again. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, and here's the one thing, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. So what he's saying is that the ultimate sanctuary is not some fortress, but rather a temple. It's not for nothing. The tabernacle and the temple are sometimes called the sanctuary. A sanctuary is a place of refuge and safety, and the ultimate place of refuge and safety is in the presence of God. The ultimate guarantee of safety is not a castle with a moat around it. It's to dwell in God's presence. Because there in God's presence, you don't just get safety. You don't just get the removal of all these negative things. In God's presence, there's not just safety, there's blessing and joy. You don't just avoid bad stuff in God's presence. You get a bunch of good stuff in God's presence. That's the point. Verse 5, I like. He just piles up some more colorful metaphors. This time he's thinking of the temple. Speaking so we of the temple in several different images. In the beginning of verse 5, he he says, he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. I'm told the word used for shelter here is sometimes translated by the word lair, lair. Now, I can understand why the translators might want to shy away from the image of us being hidden away in God's lair. That's kind of an odd connotation. Um, But I've, I've looked into some of this enough to know that sometimes the translators just chicken out if it seems too weird. Just think about it. If the psalmist really means lair... Then he wants us to imagine that we could somehow become friends with a lion who would scare off my enemies while I safely slept in his lair. If you could befriend a lion and take shelter in his lair, who in the world would mess with you? God is a lion, and the temple is his lair where no one dares mess with us. And then he switches in verse 5, when he has the image of God now as sort of a host and the temple is his tent. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. And so now, God is a a hospitable host. He takes me out of the harsh elements of the desert, and he gives me rest in his tent. And then at the end of verse 5, the image switches again, where God is something like an eagle, and the temple is a high mountain. It says he will lift me high upon a rock. So imagine God... Lifting me out of the chaos, these cannibalistic enemies are trying to get at me and God lifts me out of all of that and he puts me on top of a mountain where no one can touch me. See, this image of, of lair and then tent and then rock, these are all images piled up to the reader as a picture of complete safety and security. And When he's safely in the temple in verse 6, he says, I'm not just there to enjoy the safety, I'm there to enjoy God. Verse 4, I long to gaze at the beauty of the Lord and inquire at his temple. Verse 6, I long to be in God's presence to sacrifice and to sing and to pray and to worship. So, do you see the confidence of verses 1 through 6? This is the stuff of hymns. Literally, there are hymns from these verses. In our supplement, there is a song called, The Lord is My Light, which opens with verse 1 verbatim. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? A mighty fortress is our God is based on images like in verse 1 where God is stronghold. The Lord is my fortress. He's my stronghold. Another song, Son of my soul, plays off the image of verse 1 with God is light. Son of my soul, thou Savior dear, it is not night if thou be near. Oh, may no earth-born cloud arise to hide thee from thy servant's eyes. These are the professions we make. Sunday after Sunday. David in verses 4 through 6 is immersed in worship like we're immersed in today. It seems so clear and so obvious on Sunday what life is all about and how faith in God will always be vindicated and how the evil enemies will not triumph and will not defeat God and will not overthrow his kingdom. All of this looks so obvious and so plain on Sunday. And yet, of course, Sunday's confidence doesn't always last through the week. So we come to verse 7, where we have what I'm going to call Monday's questioning pangs. This is verse 7. Look for the stark reversal of tone. Verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. And then he says, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Do you see the abrupt switch in this psalm? We've gone from a confident hymn about God to suddenly a solicitation of God that doesn't sound confident at all. So he has said in verse 4, I want to seek you, God. That's the one thing I seek. But suddenly he's concerned about whether that's even possible or how that's going to happen. In verse 7, he's soliciting God's grace, which implies a concern over his sin which might have separated him from God. In verse 8, he says, I'm trying to accept your invitation to seek your face. But in verse 9, I'm worried that you've turned your face away from me for some reason. And perhaps that reason is his sin. He's worried God might be angry with him and God might cast him off. I read verse 10 as if David is sort of having to preach to himself, give himself a pep talk. Verse 10, For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Now, we don't know of a time when David's parents forsook him or anything like that, and I don't think he's necessarily saying that they did. What he's saying to himself is something like this. Look, David, things are bad now. Yes. Everyone is against me. And the worst case imaginable would be if my own mom and dad turned on me. But he says, listen, David, God's love is more constant than even theirs. God has said he will never leave or forsake his people. David's having, a talk, having to talk himself down and remind himself of facts about God that he knows are true because they don't seem awfully true at this moment. Now, this this sudden switch in the psalm in verse 7, it's so abrupt that there are some people who say that they could have originally been two totally different psalms that somehow got squished together in the compiling process. And to be clear, there's absolutely no reason to think that. There's no textual reason, hidden textual reason to think that. And I actually think to go that route, to try to separate two halves of the psalm, kind of marks you out as a poor reader of the psalms. The task here is not to make up scenarios that keep the two halves of this psalm apart. The task here is to think about how these two halves fit together because that's where the gold in this psalm is. It seems to me like David has hit a situation that has tested all of his confident professions in verses 1 through 6. Oh yes, God is my salvation. But now that salvation all of a sudden seems to come into question. He said, he sung, God will humiliate my enemies. But those enemies in verse 7 start looking a lot more powerful. I believe God will be my sanctuary, but suddenly he reaches a phase in his life when God seems awfully distant and he seems awfully vulnerable. I want you to see this is is the main insight of the psalm. It's a psalm that recognizes the yo-yo pattern of discipleship. David moves from faith in verses 1 through 6 to fear in verses 7 through 12. He moves from trust to trouble. He moves from resting in God, in verse 1, to to worrying and pleading with God, in verse 7. He moves from assured confidence, in verse 1, to questioning uncertainty, in verse 7. If it has ever been our experience that we had a time where we felt like our faith was squared away and everything... Everything in our lives made sense and our relationship with God was very, very sound. And then suddenly something happened that turned everything upside down. We find empathy in this song. Doesn't it help you to know that there is a text in the Bible that says that's the way things go sometimes. Everything makes sense on Sunday and then something happens on Monday that makes it look like it it makes a lot less sense. And so in verse 11, David's praying for a level path because the path for him has turned awfully rocky and hilly and treacherous. The final verses of this psalm, verses 13 and 14, are professions of faith that I think re David on those professions he made at the beginning of the psalm. He preaches to himself again, verse 13. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And so despite the difficulty and the tests of Monday, he says in verse 13, I believe God will end up being the deliverer that I praised you for being in the beginning. Verse 14, notice bookends with the same words. Wait on the Lord. And in the middle of those bookends about waiting for the Lord are the encouragements to himself to be strong and take courage. But first and last, in between my efforts, are what God is going to do and me waiting on what God's going to do. He says, if I am to have safety and blessing, it won't be just because I built a big enough castle with a deep enough moat. It will be because I turned my face toward God, I solicited His help, and I faithfully waited on His help. I think verse 14 could also be read as David sort of turning to his readers, to the hearers of this psalm, And he says, look at the highs and lows of my walk with God in a nutshell. Here's how you navigate those highs and lows. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. And then wait for the Lord. We have strength and courage to cultivate. But all of our efforts are surrounded by our solicitation of God's deliverance and our faithful waiting on God's deliverance. All of our efforts, all of our struggles are bookended by God's empowerment, by our prayers for God's help and waiting on God's help. This is a psalm about how life looks different when we're struggling in the world than it looked when we were singing hymns on Sunday. The confident assertions we make about God will be tested one day. And the question we must answer is whether we will stick with the God we sang about on Sunday when things get difficult on Monday. And David's answer to that is, it won't always be easy to do that. But discipleship means insisting that the hymns are still true on Monday, even if they don't look it. And so with all the verses of the psalm before us having talked through it, let's step back and think about what all of this might mean for us. I have two observations. Number one. The disciples' walk has never been atop a smooth, slightly uphill slope. The disciples' walk has never been atop a smooth, slightly uphill slope. Here's how I think sometimes, here's how I think we think it should work. Here's how we think the disciples' walk should go. You know, we start out as Christians, and hopefully we know that we have a lot to learn. And we have a lot of sinful habits and attitudes to overcome and a lot of holiness to learn and to inculcate into our character. Hopefully, we know, discipleship will not be easy, especially at the beginning. And if you think it is easy, then you weren't well taught. But perhaps we have a sense that, that yes, there will be a lot to learn. But as we grow, as we become more mature, as we become more familiar with Jesus and his way of living, all of this should get a lot easier as we go. And then one day, we arrive at this thing called maturity, where everything in the world makes sense, and everything in our lives is working out. And we have the idea that it's sort of slow and steady and predictable progress toward maturity, and that's how we think discipleship goes. Now, if that has been the story of your walk with God, then congratulations. But I'm actually not sure that characterizes anyone's walk with God here. We have had a time where we felt like our walk with God was, having, was going pretty well, and we were singing along with all those confident hymns about how the Lord is our light, and then one day our lives were turned upside down and shaken to the core. We got a bad diagnosis, someone we loved did. We lost someone we loved unexpectedly. We were sinned against grievously. Someone we loved sinned grievously, or we sinned grievously. We experience a big financial reversal. A close relationship we relied on so heavily breaks down. People in this room have had their lives turned upside down in dozens of different ways. This psalm acknowledges that's how it goes sometimes. I'll read you what one man said about this phenomenon, about this sort of yo-yo pattern of discipleship. He said, that's often the nature of the believing experience. There is this, and yet that. There's enjoying the beauty of the Lord, and then there's facing an unnerving emergency. The calm of faith can become the crisis of faith. And they often occur in that sequence. How it should help the saints of God to lay hold of a text like Psalm 27. A psalm that says, yes, it can be like that. The trauma of verses 7 through 12, don't falsify the faith of verses 1 through 6. They should deepen it. What I'm trying to say is, the fact there arises a crisis in our lives as we're trying to walk with God, the fact that there is a tragedy, a hardship, a question, an enemy, this doesn't call into question our entire Christian walk. It just means we're treading the same difficult path David did before. And not just David either. Paul admits the same sort of crisis happened to him post-conversion, well into his apostleship and preaching and converting people. He says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. This is not just an admission of that we had a tough time. This is an admission of my own inner soul had a difficult time. Inwardly, we despaired. The disciples' walk has never been atop a smooth, slightly uphill slope. And, yeah, we just sort of march to maturity one little step at a time, and it gets easier as you go, and there's never a, never a break, and it never goes, goes up and down. No, that smooth slope, that wasn't Abraham's walk with God. That wasn't David's walk with God. That wasn't Paul's walk with God. We could even make an argument that wasn't Jesus' entire walk with God on the earth. What I want you to see is the Bible acknowledges this reality that this is the way it goes sometimes. So number one, the disciples' walk has never been atop a smooth, slightly uphill slope. And number two, sometimes you've got to preach to yourself. There are several points at which, during the the troubled section of the psalm, um, David breaks out of his laments and his worries, and he sort of regrounds himself with reminders of what God is like and how he's resolved to follow God. And so, for example, in verse 10 he lets himself imagine that he is completely alone in the world. My father and my mother have forsaken me. In the best of circumstances, the most unconditional, unstinting love and care we experience are from our mother and father. What he lets himself imagine is that that love is withdrawn. What an awful thing that would be. And yet he says to himself, even were that to occur, the Lord will take me in. He preaches to himself that the love and care of God is the most sure and unfailing kind of love there is. Uh, a, a A more steady and faithful love than the love of any human, including my own parents. That's a lesson he needs to hear right now when it seems like everyone against him. Though everyone in the world turn against me, the Lord will take me in. He does the same thing in the last two verses of the psalm. When he basically says in verses 13, here's what I believe, and in verse 14, here's what I'll do. Here's what I believe, verse 13. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And based on that belief, here's what I'll do, verse 14. Wait on the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. See, he's not letting his most fretful thoughts be the truth he accepts and lives under. He's not letting his most dark and negative thoughts be the thing that tells him what to think. He doesn't let the darkest world he can imagine be the world he lives in. He says in 13 and 14, here's what I'll believe. And here's how I'll act based on that belief. Can I ask you to turn to to another psalm? This is Psalm 42. Psalm forty-two. There's another really good example of this in Psalm 42. The psalmist in Psalm 42 has a time of crisis. I want you to notice some of the provocative questions he's asking himself in his dark days. This is Psalm 42 and verse 9. Psalm 42 and verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemies? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day, where is your God? These are his most pessimistic and nagging doubts and worries. And yet, he doesn't leave it at that. What he does in verse 11 is he preaches to himself. He addresses himself and he starts preaching. This is verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you, my soul, in turmoil within me? And then he gives himself instructions Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Do you see who he's addressing in verse 11? Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? That's a good question. Soul, self, why are you so cast down? Basically what he's doing in verse 11 is arguing with himself, and his main argument is to remember the trustworthiness of God. He says, soul, hope in God. Trust that God will be for you. God will be for you what you need. Trust that a day of praise is coming. The presence of the Lord will be all the help that you need, and he has promised to be with us forever. There was a, a British medical doctor, a guy named uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who, uh, who quit practicing medicine in order to preach. Uh, he wrote a book called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures, and in it he wrote a little bit on Psalm 42. He said this, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment, and I will speak to you. You know, each of us are capable of self-deception. We tell ourselves stories about the world and about our lives, which are very often not true. If those stories we tell ourselves involve a God who doesn't care about us, if those stories involve a world where God is uninvolved and God doesn't care, those stories most certainly are not true, despite all appearances to the contrary. And there comes a time when we have to say, soul, Why are you so cast out? Don't you remember what God is like? Don't you remember all those stories of hope vindicated? Don't you remember those low moments of the faithful in Scripture that this this is how it goes sometimes? Soul, don't you remember those hymns you sang? And don't you believe they're still true? Each of us needs to be preaching God's truth to ourselves like that. So we're about to sing an invitation song that is taken directly from this psalm. And the question we need to ask ourselves is whether the words that we're about to sing will be as true tomorrow as they are today. Will the Lord be our light and salvation? Not just here, but also out there. Now, the temptations will be greater out there, and the aches and pains will probably be more raw. And the support and the encouragement of our brethren will be less present. But the question is, will we live as if God is our light, as if God is our salvation, as if God is our stronghold? Will we act like the hymns are still true when we go out into the world tomorrow? Maybe there's someone here that realizes you have been living two different ways, a different way on Sunday than you are on Monday. Maybe you need to seek the prayers of these good people to repent or to come Dedicate yourself to the service of the Lord in the first place. Whatever your need, come forward as we stand and sing.
1: The Lord is my life. things me